Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. People of the apocalyptic afterscape, it is I, humongous Bearclaw, supreme leader of the people of the wasteland, post-Trump, post-Brexit, post-invasion of the giant poisonous toads, post-apes taking over the New York Stock Exchange. Actually, oh great humongous Bearclaw, it's just me. All the others have deserted or were killed by the toads. Oh, well, maybe you can periscope my remarks so that my other followers scattered to the winds will know of my plan. Yes, that is such a great idea, because Periscope totally still works, and you have so many other followers besides just me. On this day, I proclaim that we will withdraw from the union of the post-apocalyptic tribes. No longer will we make common cause with the Republic of Lewandowski psychopunks, the League of the High Priests of Jim Cramer, the mutants who wear Steph Curry sneakers, and the borderless empire of thin, flat cakes of batter usually fried and then turned. Are those the people who used to be the International House of Pancakes? It doesn't matter. We're better off on our own. We have this abandoned parking lot, a dumpster fire for heat and light, and a semi-working crossbow. What else could we possibly need? Uh, A reason to live? Sit down, and I will teach you the lesson of history, about how our glorious age began with a thing we call Brexit. And now he's made a bid of 36 grand on Balmoral. Colin McEnroe. Yeah, I've been told I have to wait for the price to fall a little bit. They haven't accepted the bid, and actually the, the Windsors, they're very tough negotiators. Uh, but uh, obviously the, the prices do favor me. All right, so uh, we are – well, first of all, let me tell you who's here in the studio is uh, Rebecca Castellani, a scholar of modern literature and a music impresario in uh, Collinsville, often referred to as the Austin, Texas of Connecticut. Uh, and then speaking of music, it's Mr. Music himself, uh, Jim Chapterland, guitarist, producer, uh, band leader, everything else, uh, and Rich Holland, a principal and design director at CoLab. All of them now also have uh, positions in the British ministry. Uh, the actual titles are being worked out right now. So we had like this other plan. <laughs> so did uh, English. Yeah, yeah. Right. We had this other plan and then we sort of woke up this morning and we thought, well, you know, everything else that we were going to talk about, although we are, and I, I hope I don't drive anybody away by saying this, in the second segment, in a way that is meant not to drive you away, in a way that is meant to uh, inform you and, and maybe tempt you to watch it, even if you've never been tempted to watch it, we're going to talk, talk to you about some things that we see uh, in the series Game of Thrones. That is going to come later. Uh, and there's, there are ways to connect it to actually our first topic. Uh, I'm sure all of our panelists will be able to do that. But our first topic, we just sort of woke up this morning and thought, it seems kind of dumb to talk about anything except Brexit. Uh, although I think what we're going to do is talk about this in the sense of well, – in the ways that it kind of plays out in, in our understanding of the world that we live in and the moment we're in right now. I mean I have to say that on Wednesday night, my significant other came back from being on the road all day doing other stuff and not really paying that much to the news and it's like 10 o'clock at night and, I, I, and I've got – and she says, well, what are you doing? I said, I'm watching the chaos in the house. And she said, well, is there something wrong in our house? <laughs> I said, no, no, not our house, the House of Representatives. And, and so I was trying to say – and she was going, well, this just looks like some kind of stunt. And I said, no, no, this is like insane. <laughs> you know, They've cut off the camera. 
house. And they're periscoping the activity of the house and they're just sitting there on the floor like, you know, ben, the Benjamin Button kindergarten school or something. And, you know, the whole thing is just completely crazy. Our country's gone crazy, I tell you. Uh, and and it's just sort of like that now, but except that every day is something different. You go to bed at night and you get up in the morning and the world is different. So, I mean, in a way, that's how we want to maybe begin this conversation uh, is uh, about this uh, age uh, of uncertainty, this year that we've had. That Jim Chapdelaine, it makes sort of, you know, our, we have a natural wish to try to predict things and try to understand what's coming next. And, and actually, we also live in this age of big data where we were told it's going to be pretty easy to tell what's coming next. And it just seems as though this entire year – including today, including Brexit, has existed to thwart that whole notion? Uh, probably everything. Yeah. Everything you know is wrong. And for those of us who are insomniacs, it's, it's not helping because there's even less reason to go to sleep now because the world is going to change when you wake up. Um, the, one of the, the people that are getting clobbered today uh, are the uh, odds makers in Vegas mm-hmm. who, who tried to predict this. So coming out of this era of moneyball and freakonomics – and slice and dice metrics to try to – I think this is the age of emotion now. When, uh, certainly the sit-in was driven by populist emotion in a kind of a good way. And then this seems to be driven by populist sentiment. And certainly there's a, camp- a presidential campaign that's being driven by populist emotion that seems less data-driven than other campaigns we've seen. Uh, so it's a new it's a new age. It's the Game of Thrones. It is the Game of Thrones. Yeah, I mean that's an interesting argument, and I, you know Rebecca hadn't really thought about it that way because in fact you know the yeah, the people who got killed uh, yesterday or going into yesterday in particular were the betting markets in England where they really do feel as though they can kind of specialize in this stuff and quantify it. And I I think one of the things that we tell ourselves looking at that is these are supremely unemotional people. You know that if you listen to the five thirty eight podcast and even like Nate Silver has got a whole bunch of values, you know and and all of the quants who work with them, they're not just quants. They have, they have a way that they want things to come out. They have a way that they believe is a more orderly way for the nation and the universe to run. That Those things may get in the way a little bit of their thinking. Their, their thinking turns out to be somewhat contextualized. It's not pure numbers. But I always assume the betting markets in London, I mean, you know, what have they got? I mean, they're just putting a lot of money you know, in, into a system. They have to make it work. They can't be emotional about it. Yeah, it's tough when you're betting on your own economy. Um, I had the privilege of being on the ground uh, during the Scottish vote for independence. I was getting my master's at the fabulous University of Edinburgh. And the day of, I really thought it was going to go, yes, the feeling on the ground was, and the polls were saying, oh, I don't know, It was the polls were way more nebulous for that than they were for this. And when it went no, by a large margin, I saw that as, okay, we are, we're going for a stabilized UK. So going into this election, I did not think for a second this would happen. Even when the polls were saying it was close, I was like, well, they said that for the referendum. That went so strongly, no. And then I wake up this morning and it happened. And it's worth saying because I really do believe this is to some degree my fault. I got my UK passport on Tuesday and by Thursday – the UK has left the EU. <laughs> so I'm really sorry, Britain. I think it's my fault. Thank you. Thank you so much, Rebecca. <laughs> I'll carry Jeez. some of the guilt. Yeah. Uh, we should mention that actually Rebecca was our correspondent on the ground for our episode, the uh, Harriet Jones rockin' Scottish Independence <laughs> Eve uh, episode of the Colin McEnroe show. So that was the main reason she was over so there. So I've I given up with polls in general. Some, I think that they mean nothing. <laughs> some kind of academic work involved. Uh, anyway, I don't know. You know, Rich, in some ways, like our, what we, we often feel as though we hold at bay 
the notion that life is out of our control, mm-hmm. you know, uh, and, and that and that we tell ourselves all the time that there's maybe more certainty than there really is. Even factoring for that, I feel as though I'm living in this completely unprecedented moment. We are. Um, and um, it, what I see is happening uh, is that um, self-interest is reigning supreme. Um, And I don't think that it's so much about um, uh, the emotional tone as much as uh, it's it's a me centric um, uh, world that we're living in or or that we've made more room for. And um, and to me, that's that's the rise in Trump. I mean, folks could listen to the guy and say that he makes absolutely no sense and that, yeah, indeed, he's he's talking about a degree of racism and and ugliness uh, that, as we were talking earlier, Rebecca is mirroring um, some of the the concerns uh, of of the people who voted for this ridiculous idea in the UK. Um, But underscoring it all is a willingness to overlook um, a tremendous amount of what actually makes things work well, which is this idea of collective impact, the idea that, you know, that uh, tides rise all boats and and decide that, you know, well, we're in a position of dominance um, and we can have what we want and to hell with everybody else. And um, that's the danger of where we live in my perspective. Did anybody else besides me see Trump from Scotland today? Yes, and he said... He made this tweet, uh, this ridiculous <laughs> tweet about how Scotland's had this monumental vote without realizing that Scotland voted yeah. 62% to stay. Right. So Although, Donald Trump, check your facts. I, I might be I had So I had the whole press coverage on kind of in the background while I was working. And then I started watching him. I, maybe I'm alone in, uh, in, in feeling this way. But I thought as though in general, he, as opposed to how he ordinarily seems to me, which is this kind of out of control guy who is in fact trafficking in fear and hatred and spewing all kinds of terrible invective and not making a hell of a a lot of sense and just being utterly repellent. He actually just seemed like a guy that I might meet somewhere who I would slightly disagree with about some stuff. He actually sounded actually pretty reasonable, you know, I mean, compared to how he usually sounds. He said some of the same typical Trump stuff, but he, he actually was, I, I think he actually did know exactly where he was and how they voted, you know, because he didn't really, you know, I mean, obviously he said, look, I called this, I, I knew it was going to happen. But, you know, they asked him about David Cameron. He said, look, I, I like David Cameron, you know, I mean, maybe he said some tough things about me and maybe he got... He was he actually and I was aware of there's this whole tradition of our leaders going overseas and and making more sense than they do here. I mean, when George W. Bush used to go to any kind of international summit, he would go, oh, yeah, there's climate change and it's man-made and we have to do something about it. And they come back here <laughs> and deny the whole thing. And I think, do you think there aren't cameras over here, over there that we where we can see what you say? Uh, and I just wondered if maybe, you know, Trump is maybe a smarter international citizen than he pretends to be. I, I, you know, the key thing you said is compared to how you should yeah. say yeah, Are we this right. desensitized so to Trump? Bar. Like, are yeah. we That's saying exactly. that this is yeah. like the bar he can. He, he actually tweeted out for the, that this is great for the wrong country. Right. So I, I don't think he was super informed. I think it, it, no. in terms of golf, maybe a little bit informed, but sure. in terms of. And the Scots of, hate him. They hate Donald Trump. Say, like, you should say that more. Oh, <laughs> my God. I that again. Didn't Parliament actually have a debate yes, about yes. not, not they tried, yeah, Trump to ever come country. back? And what were the reasons for that? Because they there thought are that some, he was particularly uh, racist. And no, there's actually a, 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 a process that they have to follow if enough people demand 
Uh, they were petitioned yeah, on this. They were petitioned, yeah. And so they had to follow the mandate of the petition. He's been trying to – they've hated him for a long time. He tried to buy up all this land for his Trump golf course, and a couple of the farmers refused to sell to him. One of whom is I remember that. On. That was fantastic. Yeah. And they, you know, they had this massive withholding of land, and they still mm-hmm. haven't given up to him. And now they're actually flying the Mexican flag yeah, in solidarity say, with Mexico. Time, it's yeah. just Hilarious. genius. I love the Scots. They're the best. Well, you know, I mean, uh, another thing that has been said repeatedly and in different ways is that, you know, if this can happen, if Brexit can happen, then other things can yes. happen. And that really, uh, I've been reading the work of some British economists who have been blogging about this today saying, you know, uh, anybody who thought that Trump as president was beyond the realm of possibility should look at this. Wake up. And then also realize, and this guy was also, one thing that I think the United Kingdom has that we don't quite have is a tabloid culture that it, it almost doesn't resemble anything here. I mean, the, the tabloids in the United Kingdom, as bad as you might think, you know, pick something, Fox News, whatever it is that really bothers you. They, they're just unbelievably persistent. There's a <laughs> lot of them. They will do anything. They are completely without shame. There's just like, you know, they're like a lot worse than the New York Post. And there's just a lot of them. And they, they you know, they, they permeate uh, the information ecosystem. And so one thing that I, and one thing they were saying is watch out what your media does because you're covering Trump still way too much. You're giving him way too much mm-hmm. uh, attention and – you know, and it now seems as though you can't. And and this is also, I mean, international investors are doing the same thing, saying, "Well, I guess maybe we're not so sure Trump's not going to get in." I don't know. I mean, well, I do you, does that have any? Yeah, the, but the media has also got a lot of power because what I'm seeing right now is the media is doing uh, is losing its its interest in Trump as as a as a comedic uh, uh, as a comedic um, part of what they're doing. They are actually paying attention to what he's saying. They're refuting what he's saying with a great deal of passion and verve right now. Um, so uh, so the thing that brought him up is actually acting uh, really powerfully to, to discredit and bring him down right now. So the uh, media's got a tremendous amount of power. Um, I don't know if it's useful to us. Um, I find it incredibly confusing most of the time. Um, well, there's a glut of it right now. It wasn't in this flurry of emails, somebody, I think it was you, Colin, who mentioned there's so much news coming at us all the time. And, and having a, a sort of emerged out of a 10-week um, imposed isolation for me, recovering from the surgery, it is a constant stream, like that first two days you're laying around doing nothing. You think, oh, I'm, I'm going to watch uh, CNN or MSNBC. And it's just the same stories kind of being regurgitated constantly. That's an American so, problem. I hate to say it, but watching the BBC while living in the UK, wait, wait, they are so foot, much more global. Foot surgery or the, or the <laughs> both? <laughs> both, I would say, really. But the news coverage, I think, is abysmal in this country. I consistently, yeah. like, don't I don't get my news from turning on the television because it's just absolutely so American. So the, the question then is, where do you get reliable news? And, BBC. And also, when you look at this, the predictive uh, components of this. There's there's also this common narrative this election like, well, stick with the facts. Well, you can have your facts and I'll have my facts and you can't pick your own facts. The actual notion of facts has become – Donald Trump doesn't uh, seem to know the basic definition well, of the word but it's facts. become a debatable but, thing. What a fact is has become fluid suddenly. Right. That, that is one of – yeah, go ahead, Rich. Yeah. The issue with facts is that um, every issue has multiple facts. Right. And, and right. we cannot possibly um, uh, feed our kids, wash the car – um, eat breakfast and stay on top of all the facts that are necessary to be informed. Um, so what we end up doing is you, you, Jim, will hold on to a couple of them. 
I'll hold on to a couple of them. Colin will have a couple of them. In the ideal universe, we put them all together and we can make some sense out of what's going on. But isn't that but that's bad not journalism? What I'm seeing. Isn't not reporting the facts as they are as, as a complete story? Isn't that what journalism is supposed to do? Well, of course. I mean, first of all, I want to go back to the BBC because one of the criticisms of the BBC is that being kind of the monolithic entity that they still somewhat are, I mean, not completely, is, you know, they live under all kinds of imposed requirements about being literally fair and balanced to the extent that they have to go and they have to put on experts who may, may be saying things that really strike them as counterfactual or, or, or less than true. I mean, in covering the Brexit, yeah. you know, they had to go find people, you know, who, who, thought, who thought the opposite of maybe what their usual bank of expert economists right. w- would say. It's, that's not a perfect system either. No, I'm not saying it's perfect. I'm saying it's vastly superior to the news outlets we have in this country. That's, that's really... But I, I do think that – I mean this whole question and this, the question that you're bringing up about facts. Yeah. Well, first of all, I love your idea of sort of kind of job sharing with sort of the pooling of information <laughs> and stuff like that because I really do. I said in one of our, my emails to you guys. Sort of bit, we're bitcoining. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. But you've got to be willing participants in That's that. Right, not right. Be, you you know. have to be willing to put a little of your hard drive aside. Right. Yeah. Jim, you're in charge of Hiddlesmith. Uh, <laughs> just like don't let uh, – Hiddleswift. That's I didn't even say so it right. confusing. Yeah, I know. Me. Exactly. I'm sorry. You just have to stay on top of it for us. But you know, no, I – you know, this is sort of my job is to stay on top of the news. I'm finding it really difficult yeah. to do for the average person who, as you say, has to wash the car and do all this other yeah. stuff. I'm not sleeping. How do people do it? I'm not sleeping. Yeah. yeah. I am not sleeping. I am on like 24-hour news watch. Yeah. I'm barely working. And, and at the end of the day, what I end up asking myself is like, okay, so now I've got all this knowledge. What am I going to do? Go cast a vote? Yeah. yeah. No <laughs> you know, kidding. It's coming down to that. I, I, um, I do think that the degeneration, I mean, of fact, the notion that fact is not necessarily given the same status that, that it has been since maybe the Enlightenment started. But I've been noticing this for a while. So, you know, in Ron Suskin's uh, book, famously, this unnamed person we, who we all kind of know as Karl Rove at one point said, oh, you're still in the reality-based community. Um, you know that that uh, oh, kind of disparagingly, like, or you're still, you know, trying to sort of test things in in this empirical way. That's not how we get messages out these days. So that's been going on for a while. And I I also think on social media there is a sense that everything is an opinion, right? It's sort of the it's the Big Lebowski moment. That's just your opinion. Equal. Yeah, so everything is equal. Here's the problem with this: for this specific instance of the Brexit, you have one campaign that is functioning on facts. If the U.K. leaves the EU, it's going to cause economic chaos. And then you have the other campaign that is not functioning on facts. It's functioning on nationalism, isolationism, and fear. And the Leave campaign slogan was take control. But what – and that basically was to imply take control of the borders. We don't want all these Turkish immigrants coming into the country. But what that has has happened now is there is no plan in place. Short of filing this uh, Article 50 and withdrawing from the EU, there is no plan in place for what the U.K. is going to do with trade, with the pound, sure. with all this stuff. So this is a perfect example of how our, our dismissal of facts has resulted in a catastrophic blow to Europe. I mean, we have to vote with facts, not feelings. And I think that this election, our current election, really demonstrates that too. You know, you have these people that are so for Donald Trump, and they're not voting based on what he's going to do to our country. They're voting on the way he makes them feel, versus Hillary is not very passionate. and she, People don't get behind her because she is talking only of the facts. Although that's I, not sexy. I, I think just to sort of give a, a counter-argument so we're not monolithic about this, a lot of the same people, both in Britain and here, would say, well, I'm not necessarily interested in preserving the current order. In fact, the current order works to my right. disadvantage. Sure. But what's sure. the alternative? That's uh, not been outlined. Well, <laughs> the alternative is, is not what they have now. And I think that, to that point, there is this... I remember Jerry Seinfeld doing this little riff of sports teams where 
you're basically rooting for laundry. Mm-hmm. You remember that? Yep. And, and so we're kind of rooting for laundry now. We, we're going to drape ourselves in this flag. Or hair. In or this that flag. Oh, sure. Or hair, hair. Sure. Boris Johnson's um, hair specifically. Yeah. Well, the two of those, if those two touch Trump and, and Johnson's hair, the universe ceases to exist like, as we know it. It's like crossing yeah. the crossing the street. Right. And if you right. cross oh, their faces, it's Owen Wilson, which is even worse. <laughs> I think uh, what's yeah, go ahead, Rich. What's going on is that um, that in the absence of fact, uh, we're we're relying on theater to tell us which way to go. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and so there's I see this insurgence of of political theater going on. And and folks but some are, of it is good. Yeah, some of it is actually really interesting. Sitting sit-ins are wonderful. And, and frankly, I'd rather do a sit-in than a than a filibuster because Absolutely. you know I don't want to be want like a million tweets about how long I could hold in my pee. Um, uh, and uh, did you ever actually arrive at a time? I did. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like I'm good for a good eighteen hours. So Ooh, impressive. So I'm running for Congress. Well, you know, but I, I think sit-ins are theater, and and you know I mean I thought this the sit-in this week was really fun to watch and very interesting, and I kind of understood the purpose of it. I, I do feel as though. Um, you know, once again, like one of the bills that they were really interested in is not necessarily a great bill. I mean, there's a lot of ways in which we need to address the gun problem that, that sort of weren't on the menu there. But that wasn't really the point, right? The point was theater and yeah, the point was right. maybe getting Republicans to vote so they'd have to vo- own their vote. You know, I, I feel like we've gone way too long without hearing from John Oliver about all this, about particularly <laughs> yes. about that notion of what's, you know, where do you where do you get something that has the status uh, of truth? So uh, here's John Oliver. You know what? There's also overwhelming consensus about the damage Britain could do to its economy by leaving. Reports by groups like the British Treasury, the Bank of England, the IMF, the OECD, uh, the National Institute of Economic and Social Research, PricewaterhouseCoopers, Oxford Economics and the Centre for Economic Performance have all predicted that leaving would have a negative effect on the British GDP. And the pro-Brexit camp's response to that has not been great. I think the people in this country have had enough of experts with uh, organisations from acronyms saying... Of organisations with acronyms saying that they know what is best and getting it consistently wrong. Yes! <laughs> F*** these eggheads with their studies and degrees. I get my economic forecast from clever Otis, the GDP predicting horse. <laughs> <laughs> It does sound like the other person on the panel is John Cleese. Drop the mic. <laughs> it does sound like the other person on yeah. that panel is John Well, you've had enough of experts. Yeah. What do you mean you've had enough of experts? Um, all right. We've got uh, some calls coming in here. Let me just grab a call from Tim in Plymouth. Hi, Tim. Hi, guys. Um, well, that last part, it kind of plays into well. There was a lot of experts that said that NAFTA, GATT, all these mm-hmm. trade agreements that both the left and the right opposed – is going to be fantastic and grow the economy. Um, I, it's also kind of disturbing that people have already forgotten Bernie Sanders got 13 million votes for things like uh, national health care system, free universal uh, uh, college, those kinds of things. Uh, we, how quickly we've gone back to you know establishment politics. The situation over in England, there was a lot, a lot of frustration, and there was a lot of frustration here in this country at the same time. So, you know, those kinds of candidates, whether they're Sanders or Trump, people are looking for alternatives besides, you know, some being very staid and ordinary like Clinton or the Republicans mm-hmm. who represented the mainstream. 
Well, I would just say that frustration by itself is just frustration. Frustration with a strategy and an actual deployable plan is, is an entirely different thing. And I think what we're seeing right now is simply frustration. Yeah. And, but um, I'm also seeing uh, the, uh, the impact of, of uh, airing your frustrations. Um, uh, yesterday uh, I listened to uh, – I think it was yesterday uh, – Hillary Clinton uh, talk about um, what her uh, plan is for the future of America. And the first line item was free college tuition for everybody, mm-hmm. um, uh, uh, an, an idea that she actually ridiculed Bernie Sanders about when he f- initially presented it. But do so wanna, I think it do we penalize kind of her a, for actually moving? No, with, absolutely with that? not. Yeah. Absolutely not. The point I, the point I was trying to illustrate. <laughs> I, I actually was, have Richard the, by the throat. Yeah, right yeah now. exactly. <laughs> so so right now I'm just going to agree with Jim so that I could breathe. Um, the point that I was trying to illustrate is that the frustration had a had a point, mm. and it actually yes. yeah. helped create a change. Um, that's a huge gamble. Um, I'm more shocked at you telling us a politician has a plan. That's shocking. <laughs> no, I wasn't. Well, I also wonder. I mean, in some ways. I, I think some of what you just said is true, and then some of it I wonder about whether, in fact, what we're, you're really seeing goes back to what we were just talking about, which is that you know it's more important to promise people things than it is necessarily to have a plan to actually deliver them. That these things that are emotionally very satisfying to hear, whether like it's whether it's we're going to get the immigrants out of Britain and the NHS is going to get better and blah blah blah, or we're going to give you you know free college, whether that's a realistic thing or not, it, it may have been that Hillary Clinton has gone from being the kind of pragmatist she was six months ago to say, I might as well say this. I don't really have to prove I can do it, yeah. you know, because nobody else has to prove that they can do it That's anymore. Right. That's not the kind of political it's environment. It's not we're doable. <laughs> well, I mean, the, the fascinating thing is that that's a discussion that uh, that we'll get to measure in 2020. Right. Um, but but I, I do think now, anyway, the, the, that's one of the things that you kind of have to sort of you – know, even to survive here, I think that Hillary Clinton may be thinking, you know, whatever the rules of discourse were, I'm going to stick to some of them. But some of them I'm going to violate. Otherwise, I am going to lose because I'm running against somebody who doesn't adhere to facts and who feels free to change his opinion 180 degrees every 24 hours. You know, I, I've got to get off some of my, you know, safer talking points and, and move out in, 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 into more exciting, idealistic sound. I can't just have a plan. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's actually works against you. Actually. Um, we're, uh, we're doing the nose. We're got, I think we probably ought to take a little break right now so that we can regroup. We may have a few more things to say post-Brexit. And then, I swear to God, we can sustain effortlessly uh, into uh, Game of Thrones. If you're not a Game of Thrones watcher or liker, don't run away from this because, in fact, we're going to, first of all, I'm not going to spoil anything for you. I don't think. We'll try not to. And second of all, I just, I think there might be some things about about this that you would not suspect were the case. And we're going to tell you about those. Get to say grace and tell me over and over and over and over again, my friend. You don't believe we're on the eve of destruction. All right. One of the things we like to do on the news is talk about a piece of pop culture or culture that we've all seen. And we didn't really plan it so much this way, uh, but it just turned out that all three of the panelists have been watching Game of Thrones. Now, if you don't watch Game of Thrones, first of all, we're going to try to talk about this in a way that's very friendly to you. And the, no spoilers. Yeah, no spoilers. We will keep uh, the spoilers. We'll keep them to a minimum. I mean, there's things that we could tell you which – 
if you were to start watching Game of Thrones tomorrow, would you wouldn't remember by you know by what we said by the time you Definitely got to not. You know, we're, we're we're deep 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 into this whether you're doing it as a book or as a uh, or as a TV series. Uh, however, there was this kind of uh, I think what will be regarded as one of the you know three or four most talked about and most epic in every possible sense of that word episodes on the previous Sunday, and it got me thinking about a lot of the things about some of the um, the ideas that are embedded in Game of Thrones. And so one of the things that I kind of threw out to the panel was it's something I've been thinking a lot about the, uh, as I watch Game of Thrones is that there is kind of a crypto-feminist argument that's going on in Game of Thrones that, in fact, virility seems to equate with stupidity, uh, that the, the people on Game of Thrones, and uh, I will name some of the names, but they won't mean anything to, to some of you listening, but most of the men of the Stark family are virile and they're principled, but they're kind of dumb. You know, they make uh, pretty Massive mistakes. One of the other major male characters, uh, particularly in, at the level of, of sex symbol, is, is this guy, Jamie Lannister, who is, you know, substantially dumber than his sister, who probably isn't even one of the smarter women on the show. That, that in general, Rebecca, the smart people on Game of Thrones are women, eunuchs, and one dwarf. Um, that 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 the the kind of person that we sort of think of as the great leader, you know, the big virile guy with the with the sword. That's the guy you really probably shouldn't follow into battle too too closely. Anyway, no, I mean you made a great point, and when we were emailing about how the women on the show, because it's set you know in a very medieval world, have to watch out for themselves. They function under a level of fear that the men don't. Uh, the men oftentimes make really rash decisions because they don't fear for their lives, whereas the female character is constantly worrying about where their position is and how that's often tied up to their sexuality, have to negotiate that constantly. So you really get two camps of females on the show. You get the characters that have turned away from their assigned gender role, of which you have the youngest Stark girl is the best example, Arya. She cuts her hair. She dresses like a boy. She sword fights. She assumes mannerisms that are more masculine than feminine. And because she's avoiding that gender role, she does really well for herself. And then you have the other camp where you have the queen, uh, Cersei. You have the the newer queen, Marjorie. You have Sansa Stark, the other Stark sister, who are beautiful women that lean into that female sexuality uh, as a means to obtain power by manipulating the male counterparts. And that proves on the show time and time again how malleable the male characters are and how easily their will can be bent to craftier parties. Right. Wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> no, I have yeah. to. I'm sorry. That's <laughs> Jim doing his Jon Snow impersonation. <clears throat> well, no, and I mean, there's also this notion that, I mean, that honesty is probably a pretty bad attribute to have most of the time, right? Uh, Rich, most of the women characters, uh, Marjorie and Cersei in particular, are very good at playing their cards close to the vest. You don't always know what their real agenda is. They may tell you one thing while they're planning to do something else. And you, the viewer, may go many episodes without quite understanding really what they're thinking about doing. Whereas the men seem to have this virtuous but kind of stupid idea that they should always say what's on their mind. Most of them do, and um, but then there's also the the stumbles that happen, right? Mm. The the sort of the, this thing that I keep getting back to these reluctant messiahs that come out of it. Yeah. Um, uh, I think to to this one character, uh, Ned Stark, um, who is this absolute hero. Through how many episodes have we gone through this? Are we on episode? On what season three or something like that? No, we're Four? Way back season back. Back. Sixty. We're, we're going into episode sixty. <laughs> oh, we're out Lord. of the books. Sixty <laughs> hours, people. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and and this guy has you know, if you haven't watched it, um, he suffered a fate very right. early on. <laughs> very diplomatic um, move there, Rich. Yeah. <laughs> and and 
he's been this icon through throughout this this uh this series of where uh virtue and virility come together so absolutely perfectly and we find out you know soon which is what the series does particularly well as soon as you get completely embedded in 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 loving a character they oh, big smack mistake. Big mistake. You know, yeah. What we find Never out now that. is like four seasons later after this guy's died and he Ooh. is this icon. Well, we, we well, can't really, the kids, we can't really, see, they won't can't see too much about that. Well, yeah, so but I, I, we yeah. find out something about him yes. that's, that's surprising Tarnishes that makes you have to look at the entire, you know, back history differently. Well, I, I think also one of the things, one of the keys to the success of this series has been, it connects to our, our previous discussion, that it more closely parallels the uncertainty that we feel in mm-hmm. life every day. That really, you know, if you watch most, you know, most scripted stuff, you know, if, if you've watched a lot of it, you can pretty much tell everything that's going to happen, mm-hmm. right? Almost everything that's going to happen on on Law and Order or something like that. You you, know, you kind of know after happen. a while that happen, things right. are telegraphed and, and uh, Gorman Bashar Bashar, my friend, who's a filmmaker, uh, can actually says he can actually watch movies and like look at his watch and tell you when certain things are going to happen. It's that formalized, mm-hmm. um, and and this is not like that. That as you say, if you like somebody, prepare for them to die fairly soon. Sure. I mean, a lot of times you would think, well, well we're not exactly encouraging people to watch this at this point. But but if you we don't do, care. I will say this: if you are going to watch this, you can't wade into this show. You need to start from episode one and be patient. And be rewarded as it unfolds. It's, I think that's really important. Otherwise, you'll never keep track of, of anything. So I watched the first season and then I read all the books and went back and watched the first season. And that was a totally different experience. Um, but that being said, the first season was no less brilliant, the first watch, not having known the history of Westeros and Essos. And I think that's what makes the show so great is that you can go through six episodes being like, oh, I have no idea who's talking right now. Who is this? I think that's a Stark. Winter is coming. What's, there are dragons. I don't know. And you'll still walk away at the end with chills, w- gasping, with awe. And I think that's more the demonstration of power play yes. and how like you don't need to know the players to know that the machinations very clearly mirror What's happening in our current political stage? And for that reason, it's genius. I am a testament to that. I have been watching every season <laughs> <laughs> religiously. I watch it on Sunday. I won't watch it on Monday. Yeah, me either. Um, Sunday night. So watch it live. And uh, there must be probably a good 120 characters that are named that you should know in this thing. And I could cite the names of four of them. You can double that in the book, right. too. And, and I can name the four of them because they're more familiar. Their mm-hmm. names are like John. Yeah, or, John you know, is a good name in it's that. It's a good yeah. name. Um, but, but other than that, I have no idea who's who, who's married to, who's related to. I'm seeing people, you know, that I think are, are – You know, part of that thing is that – Are married and, you know, well, I guess they're siblings. <laughs> you're right. Well. Well. So part, part of that – part of what you're talking about is this arcane naming system I think he had to come up with to invent a world. Right. So there's very few people named Bill or Richard or Jim. There is or, one Kevin though yeah. and he's there's the a Kevin. Yeah. Right, right. But, well, if but you he have works a name, in the mail room. Right. Yes. If, you, if you have a name that sounds kind of familiar – then it's spelled d- differently, right? So right, Kevin exactly. is K-E-V-A-N. Yes. So, uh, yeah. Rob is two. Rob with two Bs. Like <laughs> he's actually a very good namer. You know, he, has, yeah. he had to think up over a thousand names. Uh, I think I read somewhere to do these books, and I'm like, I always thought George Lucas is a terrible namer. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, like Mace Windu. Are you kidding me? You know, like, Luke Skywalker. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Chewbacca is kind of a really stupid name. Um, you know, this guy, he's actually really good at, good at uh, coming up with names. I do want to say that. I mean, you know, the politics of this. It's really the first series that I've seen with a really interesting set of politics and a really interesting set of political idea 
is. And while the, one of the most cherished and publicized characters on this show is uh, Daenerys Targary- Targaryen, better known as the Khaleesi. You know, and, and she is uh, asking this question or getting us to ask this question. Can you impose a moral order on a very chaotic and cynical world? I can already tell from your body language you have something you want to say about this. I'm sorry. I'm such a Game of Thrones nerd. Daenerys I find really interesting in this gender argument too because she is uh, infertile. So she is the most virile of the female characters. And because of that, she actually makes a lot of mistakes and and makes more traditionally masculine decisions. A lot of the times they work out for her because she can still lean into her sexuality and kind of smooth things over with a, a drapey dress and a coy smile, as we saw in this last episode with the Greyjoys, which are notoriously hardened, iron-born salt men. And people, people listening should know that you're actually – Broadcasting while riding a horse. Yes, uh, of course. So for the while riding the winds of winter, because George R. R. Martin is never going to finish it. Right. I'm prepared to assume that role. Um, Waiting for the call. Yeah, I mean, there is there is this sense that you have with her that she so believes in herself yeah. that that she does think that she can make the world a better place. On on last week's episode, she is talking to a group of people from what what are called the Iron Islands. All they have ever done in their lives is sail around, plundering and raping pillaging. And, and pillaging. And she says she makes a deal with them, but she says, "But you're you know you're going to have to stop roving and raping and reaving." And their leader says, well, that's all we do. Yeah, like, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but, but they agree. They'll, they'll just take this plan back to their people. Yeah, they're just going to uh, transform their, you know, multi-hundred-year-old culture. And and it really is – it's an odd question, you know, because really it is sort of the fundamental political question that a lot of idealistic people have. It's kind of maybe even the Bernie Sanders question. Can you really make the world a better place just because you think you can do it? Um, and she's had a whole plot this season with the relationship between her rule and slavery and, and how it's a lot more complicated than her just wanting to liberate the slaves and how it doesn't it's not that easy it doesn't work that way so her idealism has been curbed by Tyrion Lannister another a dwarf so another character that's not necessarily possessed with much virility though the first season would suggest otherwise um, he you know is serves as her advisor and serves as a real curbing influence on her constantly reminding her that look the world is not it's not a matter of you breaking the wheel and disrupting the Game of Thrones you have to play the game if you want to sit on the Iron Throne and that's something and she's got to learn the game is terrifying <laughs> and it's I, one of my favorite lines I think one other thing that I've noticed that really kind of speaks to the current moment uh, one of the things the thing that's happening in sort of maybe the most ur- urbanized part uh, of, of uh, Westeros or the Seven Kingdoms uh, is King's Landing which is kind of you know where it all really sort of happens uh, and one of the things that, that one of the plots that has emerged over the last two seasons is is one of those kind of fatalistic attempts to um, enlist uh, a group of religious fanatics on one's own behalf uh, without necessarily understanding what they really are and what they're really capable of. So one of the somewhat more cynical characters in the show, a woman named Cersei, uh, does do this. She's got a a little bit of a power vacuum that she's trying to deal with. Uh, She tries to line up uh, with this group of people who are actually technically referred to as the faith militant. And every time that, that gets said, I think that they're saying the faith militant, which is very uh, confusing to me. But they are... And Dragon schmooze. Yeah, we know a faith got to dress up for his Halloween this year. Right. So, Get the shame bell out. And there's out. this guy called the High Sparrow, uh, beautifully played by the wonderful British actor Jonathan Price. Um, and it just turns out, Jim, that talk about trying to ride a dragon. This is a dragon that's not that easy to ride. Uh, she, Cersei has drastically miscalculated what happens when you invest a group of people like that with a lot of power. Yeah, and you know what? One of the things that we initially in this initial flurry of emails before the world changed in front of our (laughs) eyes was the idea that the politics in Game of Thrones had some sort of connection to the politics that are happening now. Mm -hmm. Um, 
I'm, I'm just thinking about Donald Trump going and standing at Liberty University or wherever it was where he tried to appeal to evangelicals yeah. despite the fact that he's the antithesis <laughs> of, of anything that they would want. And, and there is – that's maybe the most real-world example of what Cersei is facing when she harnesses the power of religion and, and unleashes it uh, or not even religion, cultism and fanaticism. Um, as it applies to to our situation right now, I mean, I, I think that just to, to touch on one last thing about this, and I, I hope this discussion uh, maybe prompts a few people to kind of either check this out or at least feel as though they're a little bit more informed about something they hear other people talk about. So, uh, in fact, uh, George R. R. Martin, the literary creator of all this, says that it's heavily based on his study of the War of the Roses and. Um, I think one of the things that they do, Rich, is a very kind of, for the most part, unsentimentalized look at battle and, yeah. and notions of military valor that, you know, in some ways, whether you're watching Lord of the Rings or something else, a lot of it's kind of cleaned up and looks like kind of exciting and fun to run around being Legolas, shooting your arrows into people. And, and the battles here are, uh, for the most part, bloody and unpleasant uh, and semi-inconclusive at times. Yeah. And so this week, there, we were, there was something called the Battle of the Bastards that we've all been waiting for for quite a long time. Um, and, and I, I once again, thought that they, they managed to horrify me, mm-hmm. it's sort yes. of in the way that yeah, yeah, the, no the first, Absolutely. the opening scene of Saving Private Ryan suddenly makes D-Day turn into a completely different thing in your mind right. somehow or other the way and I'm talking to the design guy there right, right. they got the design of this right somehow yeah they they got the choreography right they got the design right they they got um they were able to show you the uh the impossibility of the strategy mm-hmm. um and uh and when you walk into a trap there is no exit and it is brutal and um, it's layered and gray, and the light just keeps shrinking yeah. and shrinking. Claustrophobia out of was yeah, how I felt exactly. the entire episode; like I was jumping out of my skin. And yeah, out of very every, intentional. Yeah. It, but there, there are um, there are some great sources. And in our conversation, I had uh, I had summed up. I had uh, referenced uh, Ron, uh, a Kurosawa movie. Mm-hmm. Um, that is something that folks should definitely see to to take a look at the the genesis of that type of of massive scale yeah. choreographed uh, trampling um, battle scene. Uh, it, it brings a kind of beauty to it at the same time, though, because I mean, because you can't be in it. You know, so you're forced to observe it from the hill. Mm-hmm. And you want to be. I scream at my TV every episode. Sure. I'm like, John, you're so stupid. Don't mm-hmm. do that. But well, he's stupid. That's he's, the original yeah, he's beautiful, though, so it's okay. They're mutually exclusive. I mean, I, I, watching the <laughs> I overhead. That's crypto feminist. <laughs> yeah. I was watching the overhead shot of this, Jim. I, I found myself. Uh, there's a sort of a moment at the end where you're sort of seeing what appears to be the conclusion of this battle, and it looked like a giant intestine that was just oh, di- yeah. digesting yeah. these people. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, or or or. Um, an octopus's mouth or something, some squid's mouth. It was, it was, uh, that was a terrifying scene. And the I think. shot actually mirrored perfectly the scene a few seasons ago when Daenerys first liberates all the slaves. And here she is, this one blonde hair, purple-eyed white woman in a sea of brown Muck. people. And yeah. now you get the same image of, of John emerging from death. And it's, it, the parallels between them 
are perfect. I mean, it, the show is clever. It knows what it's doing, especially with cinematography. But it, um, but there there is in it knows what it's doing with symbolism as well. Yes. Because I mean, this isn't going to be a giveaway at all. Okay. But there is a, an element of it that felt like John was buried in this yeah. in this in this sea of bodies, mm-hmm. and you could start seeing this tiny little opening yep. uh, above him, like it's like a birth canal that this yep. guy was getting pushed through. <laughs> And, um, and it, randomly, there was a lot of randomness. They yeah. sort of pointed out the randomness of battle right. yes. in that. All right, we're going to have to stop there because um, uh, every moment that we spend on Game of Thrones gets taken away from the recommendations we're going to make after we do this. Stay with us. Our panel will recommend some things you can enjoy before the robots come and drain away our life forces. Those horrible robots. Today's show was produced by Colin McEnroe, Betsy Kaplan, and me, Kion Wolf. Greg Hill appeared in the intro and tweets for us at WNPR Colin. Our intern is Leah Myers. The part of Bill Curry was played by David Cameron. For show pages, articles, and videos of the Here and Now staff's helpful chart on how to tell Corey Lewandowski from Ramsey Bolton, go to our website, wnpr.org slash Colin. On Monday, our epic show about Batman. And now, back to Colin. All right, time for some recommendations. So, Rich Holland, you go first. I've got two for you. Um, there's this thing that's going on on Pearl Street in Hartford right now um, where a dance troupe, uh, Timo Astro, has taken over a gallery and has been there every day this week dancing and doing stuff. Uh, tonight's the finale. Uh, the director's uh, Arian Wilkerson. I've been following this, uh, this young guy for the past uh, year and a half or so. He's a brilliant, um, intensely emotive dancer, and, uh, and I'm going to be standing in the window tonight watching this thing, uh, so look forward to seeing other folks there. It's down at EVK Gallery on Pearl Street, Hartford. Um, the next thing, in consideration of some of the conversations that we're having today around um, moving away from self-interest, you know, like what will save our, our civilization one day? Um, is about moving away from self-interest and taking a look at how we work uh, collectively. Um, uh, there is on uh, – got to look at my sheet because I can't remember dates at all. July 21st, um, the guy who is uh, the mastermind uh, behind the understanding of the opportunity gap uh, is going to be here in Hartford uh, at the Bushnell, uh, room for a good 900 folks to sit and have a collective conversation about uh, how we address uh, poverty and the uh, the um, and all the various gaps that are created by the gigantic divide of wealth and poor in our state in particular. Um, so go to register at hfpg.org slash Putnam. And while you're on that page, there's also a list of Incredibly great related readings uh, that are that are definitely worth checking out. Um, lots of work for all of us to do. All right, go ahead, Jim. Okay, so mine are far more humble than Richard's, um, but I have, uh, like I like I alluded to earlier, I'm recovering from a uh, foot surgery, so I am immobile, uh, which has forced me 
to consume much more media than I would normally consume and forced me to, to sort of binge tweet all these sort of habits that I need to get rid of. But uh, one thing that I did finally watch and was astounded by is The Wire oh. on HBO. And I hadn't seen it before and I, I refused to wait in halfway. I waited for my opportunity and it paid off in big dividends. It's an amazing show. It's it's gray. It's re- especially in light of what's happening in Baltimore. It's set in Baltimore. Uh, police, drug dealers, uh, very thin lines and stuff. Great acting. Uh, and I'll I'll take that. I finally went to a movie uh, after about eight weeks of. Uh, so the through line is that Idris Alba and uh, um, Idris Alba. Who's the other guy? Tell us the movie, and we can really help you out. Yeah, Finding Dory. Okay. Oh, okay. So Finding Finding Dory was great. It, it's um, I have to know because they Idris Elba plays a seal, mm-hmm. and it's really important that you know that because that's how I got from The Wire to <laughs> Finding Dory. Yeah. And now they're, they're similar in other ways. And, too, and now sure. I'm suffering short term memory loss. So I'm, All right. I'm before, sure. before we run out of time here, Rebecca, what have you got for us? Uh, real quick, I've got uh, River's Edge Bistro in Unionville. Fantastic Mediterranean food. Nicest people. They do Sunday brunch. It will blow your mind. Go there. It's delicious. Uh, Say the name of it again. River's Edge Bistro in, in Unionville. Okay. Um, my obligatory Collinsville <laughs> endorsement is July 16th is Collinsville Hot, which is a Town-wide festival. There's going to be food trucks, vendors. There's going to be a moonlight kayaking, music, all sorts of fun stuff. So if you're in the area on the 16th of July, please uh, come check out Collinsville. And my last one is last night I watched Zootopia, which I was not keen to watch. I'm not a big children's movie fan, and it was awesome and so relevant to our current cultural moment, so I highly recommend. All right. So I'm about to take a week off. Uh, I'm always interested in finding some good pot boilers or thrillers or detective novels, uh, so feel free to recommend them to me. But uh, I've been uh, encountering the work of the Icelandic author Arnoldur Indridason. I hope I said that correct. I just got through Jar City. Uh, I'm starting another one after this. Uh, He's Terrific. It makes you want to go to Iceland. I also want to say that the Elizabeth Park Rose Garden is at full flower right now. I would recommend going in an off-peak hour because, unless you really enjoy, you know, sort of one of those Chicago moments when every day is the 4th of July. But uh, there's, it, there's the flowers there are beautiful. I'm told the Pardee Garden uh, in uh, East Rock Park in uh, New Haven is also very nice. And then there's uh, the Walnut uh, Park, uh, Walnut Street Park, I guess, in New Britain, also beautiful rose. Go see some roses. I mean, this is rose time in Connecticut, one of the really great times, uh, one of the great reasons to live here in Connecticut. I hear from the music. I can't endorse anything else. Thanks so much to uh, to Rebecca Castellani, to Rich Holland, and Jim Chapdelaine. We'll be back on Monday. Well, well, I'll be back on Monday with our old Batman show from earlier this year. It's a great show if you haven't heard it before. Wait, 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 I'm confused. Is the Brexit how Game of Thrones starts or how it ends?